0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Historical Friction. My name's Alice and for this week, because it's the start of December, we have a slightly different kind of episode for you. I feel like I say that every time, but this week I talked to Dan Hanks. Dan is the author of Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire, which is a really fun fantasy sci-fi book set in the 1950s in the context of Egyptian archaeology and treasure hunting. And we talked a little bit about that genre and the book and the process of writing it. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at History Friction, and you can find us on Patreon at Historical Friction. We really appreciate any support that you can give us. You don't have to give us money. You can just give us lots of love by leaving us nice reviews and things like that and telling your friends. Here's the episode. Hi Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about what you do and what you're working on at the moment? Yeah,
1: hi Alice, Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I am Dan Hanks, I'm the author of Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire and uh, my latest book Swashbucklers, which has just come out, which is all very exciting. Um, I'm a writer um, of books and screenplays and occasionally (laughs) comics. when I can find the time, I work in heritage myself. I've got a background in archaeology, um, and I'm currently doing marketing for a very lovely um, heritage consultancy um, in the Greek District, which is really nice.
0: Amazing. The reason that I wanted to talk about Captain Moxley and the Embassies of the Empire is because it is just such a fun entry into the kind of canon of adventure, historical, archaeological, heritage y kind of fiction. And I i am so excited to get to talk to you about this because I loved this book so much when I read it and I really yeah one of the things that I really liked was the engagement with a genre that is often very colonialist in a way that was also kind of aware and critical of that history
1: yeah I mean well thank you uh, it's, it's always nice when people enjoy the books and it was particularly nice to know that you enjoyed this one <laughs> because it had that element and i know with you know with the things you've done and and still do it was nice to know that you connected with the book in that sort of post colonial <laughs> way so yeah it was really it's really nice to be able to get the chance to chat to you about it
0: amazing um so just for some context for people who haven't read the book it's set in 1952 and it's taking place kind of immediately after the Second World War, there's a really interesting context going on in the background about sort of nationalism, particularly in America, and the UK, and questions of who gets to be in charge of things. There's a lot of stuff about world power and world peace. And could you introduce us to the main character a little bit? She is delightful.
1: (laughs) Uh, The main character is um, a former Spitfire pilot called Samantha Moxley, or Captain Moxley, who is um, tired is the, the one <laughs> word I always use to describe her. She's tired yeah. on many levels. Um, and when we first meet her in the book, it's towards the end of the war, and then we skip forward. She's been recruited by a shadowy US government agency, um, which are always the best kind of Love them, <laughs> agency, can't resist them, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> um and she has uh, sort of left on bad terms and they this agency was um investigating and um looking into supernatural and otherworldly um aspects of our existence and she was a big part of that and so she comes out the other side even more tired um and then gets <laughs> dragged into an adventure um through her archaeologist sister and um jess and uh her curator partner, Will, um, and Sam's old best friend, Teddy, who is a an old professor a professor of archaeology. Um, and they they go on a jaunt.
0: <laughs> it is such a jaunt like truly the greatest way of describing this is a very very tired lady goes on a romp and it's such a <laughs> like oh, so now, now I wish
1: that was on the front cover. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like firstly you have the character of Sam just being so like deeply exhausted by all these people around her and I do really appreciate a book where like sometimes the nerds are villains, um, rather than just, I think there's often a bit of a tendency to be like, oh yes, but if you are quiet and bookish, you are going to be one of the good guys. And (laughs) and I love that the characters within this have complexities to their approaches to archaeology. And Sam is kind of dragged, kicking and screaming on this adventure to go and find some treasures. And it takes them from Paris to Egypt and all over the place. And it really fits within an amazing kind of adventure fiction adventure film pulp kind of genre and I use pulp as a compliment here and I hope you recognize I that take I think it like it a, compliment. a, a worry, high yes. high compliment because this is a this is a genre that has a really delightful history in film and fiction it
1: is yes
0: And one of the things that uh is particularly fun about the book is that there are a lot of references um and allusions to other sort of entries into this canon I picked up on a couple but I know I missed a lot more
1: there are um I mean I'm going to be honest with you I can only remember one (laughs) (laughs) um there are probably a couple of intentional ones and many many subconscious ones simply because these are the and it was really the cinematic pulp that that inspired me it was Indiana Jones it was Mm. you know dare I mention it, King Solomon's Mines, um, mm. you know, things like that, um, and it was that kind of pulpy B movie of the 80s that really filled me with joy um, in a lot of ways, and and I look back on some of them and, and go, what the hell were they thinking, <laughs> um, yeah. as we do with a lot of stuff from, you know, that era and, and beyond, um, but it was... I I take pulp as a compliment because I I love it. And it is fun and it was meant to be fun, but there are definitely complexities to it that I wanted to introduce, yeah.
0: Right, which brings us on really nicely to some of the features of the pulp genre is that the kind of presence of archaeology as a puzzle. I'm really interested in your take on this because I know it's something that archaeologists often kind of resent, this idea that like, oh, that means you're just, you know, solving riddles and finding clues and things like that. And and that is very much sort of the pop representation that we have of archaeology through things like Indiana Jones. And I mean, we've done an episode on the podcast about the various iterations of the mummy as another great example of the sort of yeah. archaeological treasure hunt. So I was very interested in your perspective on, on that, the kind of way that archaeology becomes, becomes a puzzle game and, and how that can be really frustrating, but also really rewarding.
1: I mean, it's a difficult one because um yeah there's a lot of aspects to it because the puzzle element i think and i was thinking about this earlier it it does come from that idea of discovery
0: yeah which
1: is a very colonial way of thinking um it's it's sort of inherently tied to that because we we went around the world and discovered in quotes (laughs) um these Mm. these countries and then and then try to unlock their secrets which you know, um, we were unlocking them for ourselves. Right. But there, were, there were so many unknowns; everything was a puzzle. And it was the idea of exploration is a very human, um, you know, concept and and something that a lot of people just. I mean, I love exploring. I love going to yeah. new places and, and finding out new things about people and cultures and you know geography and whatever. And it, you know, the idea of exploration is is a is a wonderful one but it is in those aspects it was tied in with you know discovering these places that hadn't really been lost (laughs) right Um, so there is that juxtaposition between the idea of unlocking secrets compared to these were never really (laughs) (laughs) secrets yeah um you know on the ground who were already there
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's something that we've seen like a lot of reckoning with much more recently with research and work that's considering the role of local communities in archeology, span right? And so you get projects that think about the involvement of local excavators, for example, or map makers and historians in finding, quote unquote, finding lost treasures and that sort of thing. And yeah, the idea of translation and of kind of problem solving and puzzle solving is something that's really deeply tied into a history of colonialism. And and it's the kind of thinking behind things like, you know, decode the Rosetta stone and we will be able to unlock the secrets of ancient Egypt. Right. And that's something that's done in a very controlling kind of power hungry way. A lot of the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting going back to what you just said about, you know, working with local people, um, when I I lived in Australia for eight years and I, I mean I don't know the history of it but it was certainly a very present factor when I was working there um, for local Aboriginal communities and them being the custodians of the land mm. and working very closely with those communities on projects um, that was a really interesting way of seeing how it can be done with as much respect as as possible um, and how it would have been nice to have seen that done in the past, but you know.
0: Yeah, hindsight. right. <laughs> Absolutely. No, completely. And that's something that is still, still kind of in flux. Like I say this as someone who has been based in an anthropology department in the past where there are still people who really believe in the idea of doing field work that is kind of going and discovering things and studying like there are still people within like archaeology and anthropology that that see themselves as kind of discovering and studying the native populations in a really like nasty and messed up way and there's a great growing kind of reckoning with that i think and You certainly see it in places where there are uh, indigenous custodians of land and of heritage, and that's amazing. But yeah, it does really shine a very um, blunt light on the way that these things have been treated in the past. So I was really interested in the way that one of the major plot arcs of the book takes place in the context of a power struggle between these mostly European characters and kind of Euro-American characters and the power structures in Egypt and how they are at odds with each other about control of heritage sites and historical objects.
1: Yes yeah so I mean that was really interesting to to explore because you know traditionally the Americans or the British or you know the the white westerners would bowl into whatever country and it was often egypt (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, and then the egyptians would be the bad guys trying to stop them getting, getting access and unlocking the secrets and then you know that would be the the structure to it and in this case i wanted to i mean the some of the egyptians in here are the bad guys but the americans are also the bad guys yeah um and you know then we have a british woman um and a half egyptian half german try on the other side of this and I wanted to sort of. It was nice having a sister who was an archaeologist and a, another sister who wasn't and was a bit more cynical about everything mm. and understood a little bit more about being in a country that's being overrun by people like the Nazis went across Europe and they sort of ran roughshod over the countries and took and stole and, you know, um, people's culture. And so she has that aspect coming into the story. And it was good to be able to have her and her sister argue about that stuff because these are the conversations that we're having ourselves as we move from you know what i call old school archaeology which is Mm -hmm. what i studied a long time ago and these conversations that we're now having on places like twitter which can be a health site but it you can also (laughs) learn a hell of a lot yes Um, (laughs) and we we are having these conversations and we are slowly i think as a collective trying to we are getting to understand how we've done things in the past and how we should be Mm. doing them now and having the, the Egyptians. um, So the Egyptian army and Colonel Arif in this book being a, he is particularly a nasty bad guy, but he has a point.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And that point is,
1: this is his country. This is his culture. He's very proud of it. He wants to protect it from outside, you know, influences and being taken
0: Mm.
1: and you can get on board with that and you don't like his methods, but you can understand where he's coming from.
0: No, completely. And that was something I really appreciated about the book is, is the fact that even when characters are kind of going about things in nasty ways, they've often got very kind of sincere intentions behind them, particularly when it comes to their individual approaches to kind of protecting or preserving heritage and the idea of keeping it in a nationalist context, or the idea of appropriating it in a nationalist context is something that's so interesting. There are a couple of references in the book to the uh, excavations, <laughs> exploitation of Egypt by France during the Napoleonic era, and particularly the way that the British then kind of reappropriated a number <laughs> of those objects. <laughs> and this is something that I've written about and kind of worked on a little bit in the context of how those objects are then displayed in museums you know here in the UK or in France and how the role of archaeology becomes this way of shoring up kind of national power and and making a statement of control and it was really nice to see that explored by these characters
1: yeah I mean that always fascinated me how the French went in and then we stole all their stuff from them having stolen it and then we (laughs) kept it and then and then, you know, kids like me go into the British Museum and go, wow, this is so cool. And it ties you with that country. And and it's only later you go, why have we even got that? <laughs> why, have right. we, why have we got that and why have we kept it? Because yeah. it, it's not ours. And what about the kid in, you know, in Cairo who should have been able to see that? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of depth to it for sure um, I mean the British and French just we did a lot of silly stuff didn't we
0: (laughs) my favorite story from that era is always the one of um one of the British archaeologists leaving his finds momentarily so that he could go and secure you know shipping from Cairo and things like that and he comes back to Thebes like a month later and finds that the French have basically written fuck you Britain all over his artifacts. Like we were here. France has been here. Like wow. screw you all over everything just to kind of like, if we can't take it cause you know, it's too heavy to move. That's why you've gone to Cairo to get a boat. We're going yeah. to at least make sure that it's, it's reduced in value.
1: Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the Egyptians must've loved us.
0: Oh God. But then that comes back in this really interesting way to how the pressure that's now being placed on museums in Britain and France, for the most part, to yeah. repatriate objects to Egypt has taken on this an, another kind of nationalism to it. And I am very much on record as being like pro repatriation, yeah. <laughs> but also it's a really messy thing because then you get into a situation where. Often these objects are things that have not been considered valuable by anyone. You know, there was a case of, um a piece that may or may not have been from one of the pyramids. And it's literally like, this is a lump of rock and we can't know for sure where it came from uh, in a museum in Scotland that was being sought for repatriation. And it sort of becomes this this kind of rolling ball of like, well, if these objects were taken in the context of shoring up a kind of national identity, like then yeah, fair enough, you're gonna do the same thing in return, but also maybe let's consider why nationalism as a whole is often really, really bad. (laughs)
1: yes yes i mean i don't think we can solve this
0: (laughs) oh god no no and i'm very much not trying to
1: no i mean it's it's it is a it's a fascinating subject with uh, so many layers to it it's Mm. it's just we could talk for hours to be honest and still not get any closer to what we should be doing i mean in the ideal world what we should be doing is returning everything yeah but there are certain you know levels of complexity to that as you say yeah. that that you know at least in some of the contexts where they've been taken they have been put on display people have been able to see them um, they've been protected in a way mm. so there is that yeah. argument um, and whether that would have the same they'd be afforded the same respect and level of protection I don't know no. I, I guess it's a context by context basis isn't yeah. it and um, yeah. Yeah, but that's for brighter minds than mine too, <laughs> Okay, out. well then,
0: so then to bring it back, let's think about like the role that, that fiction and, and fantasy and like this is a book that is, you know, very much not straight historical fiction. And I always appreciate that as well.
1: I <laughs> it think is, that should be the disclaimer on the front. It <laughs> should
0: very much be the disclaimer on the front. But um, there are elements of science fiction and fantasy and kind of like weird supernaturally shit going on throughout the book. And yeah. that is... A really interesting kind of way, I think, of engaging people with some of these issues, right? You suck them in with the promise of of aliens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it, it was, I mean, it was born out of my um, undergraduate dissertation, um, which my professor did not take kindly to, and I was always on the fringe of my group. I, I The X-Files was big, I was kind of into being the Fox molder of <laughs> our archaeology department. <laughs> I think it was like the Elmer Fudd maybe. But, um, <laughs> but he said, I, I, re- I remember very vividly in this um, well-renowned professor of archaeology's office. And he said, you know what? This wasn't very good as an academic <laughs> piece of work, but it would make a good book. So uh, I thought,
0: huh. Nice.
1: <laughs> so it, it has been a case of really taking a lot of stuff. And I didn't, I'm I'm going to be honest, I didn't do a lot of research with this book because a lot of it I'd read about in the past and Mm. it was stuff I enjoyed reading about anyway. um, So I took a lot of the things I remembered and then just built on that in a ridiculous and silly escapist way. And there was a large part of that, which was just to be, to have it be fun. And a large part was to avoid any, contentious issues (laughs) yes yes um which could have cropped up had I taken a more serious um skew with it
0: but I mean I think that's like okay firstly not to be very kind of overly theorizing your work at you I think it's really great and really interesting as a way of approaching kind of understandings of history and historical fiction is always done through this filter of kind of misremembering and remembering things and and to base work you know not in perfect research but in kind of atmosphere is always so much more interesting and fun and enjoyable and therefore also kind of more engaging with the historical period that's being represented
1: yeah but yes it, it was interesting to sort of take that nugget those nuggets of history and mm-hmm. really include them in the book to add a layer of authenticity to it but to have this the conversation about what archaeology means and mm. the the idea about should we go in and nick everything and then display it or should we does it need to be undertaken with a light touch um, yeah, and that's yeah. that's one of the quotes in the book from teddy he's talking about how we need to sort of we need to tread lightly yeah and it was that kind of it was less about doing the research about the facts and figures and the locations but more about trying to get the archaeological theory and the conversations we're having today mm. into the atmosphere of the book
0: absolutely yeah so i that brings us on to something that i wanted to mention which is the presence of nazis
1: yeah <laughs> we we
0: we love to punch some nazis in any you know in reality and in fiction yes. and Okay, so this is all happening in the kind of context of a post-World War II, like, society. And so amongst the sort of villains of the book, you have a man who is a former Nazi who has been brought to America to be kind of involved in the research being done by this shadowy organization, the Nine. And he is, like, unavoidably a villain. He is just the absolute worst. And that is as it should be. (laughs) But... (laughs) I thought this was an interesting thing in the context of the way that we often see someone's kind of contributions to research being used to justify like their personal politics or whatever. And personally, I think that's bullshit.
1: Yes. Yeah. It was, it was something that fascinated me when I found out about it, but fascinated me in a, why the fuck did we do that kind of way? Mm -hmm. When we, when I learned at, at school that, you know, a lot of scientists ended up going, hey, you know, we've done all this bad stuff, but we can do this stuff for you. Yeah. Uh, and then going off and having nice lives and <laughs> kind of rubbed me up the wrong way. So I, it, I wanted to include that aspect in this book and have have us talk about it and acknowledge the fact that we did that. Yeah. Um, and then we put these people in positions of power and, they, and influence. Um, and sometimes it's nice to punch them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, for clarity, we're talking about the context of things like Operation Paperclip, which is what happened in the United States, where people who had been involved at quite a high level with um, research and often weapons development and bioweapons and things like that, uh, or had been like high ranking people within the Nazi party were then essentially given asylum in the United States in exchange for their work. And this is a real thing that happened and like was a really quite significant part of a lot of technical and scientific development. And I hate the word development, but it's kind of what I have to use coming out of Britain and the United States in the 20th century. And so having that kind of present within the book, I thought it was another really great way of bringing in sort of the realities of historical kind of manipulation. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I like the idea of writing something where there are nuggets of truth in there, and people can go, "Ah, wow, okay, so that actually happened." I mean, and and yes, it did. I mean, it didn't happen in this context, but there were people who were, you know, taken and given asylum and and ended up in positions of power. Um, mm. And I wanted one of those guys to be a very very bad guy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, and
1: I have to be honest. When I wrote this, I originally wrote it as a screenplay, and mm. um, I wanted. I always wanted this character to be, to be a nazi and i did wonder at the time because i wrote the screenplay you know about oh god no um a long time ago <laughs> 13 years ago or so um but i want I, I thought you know is it a bit too cliche making him a nazi because we've done that's been done to death and then the nazis came back
0: oh yeah um that so happened. that was
1: fun <laughs> <laughs> um so that was really strange to be I, I adapted the the screenplay into this book and it was it sort of happened at a time when this stuff was coming back mm. and it was very present in the news and and everyone's consciousness and so I made sure he got punched a lot yeah <laughs> which yeah. was my way of dealing with that problem
0: and I have to say one of my favorite things about angry robot is that they'll give the little sort of file under recommendations and one of them on the back of your book is a bash the fash which is always a good one (laughs) love them yeah that's
1: exactly what we need to do
0: yeah so let's talk a little bit about about tropes and how they are kind of they're, they're fun and also challenging them is also really good fun we did an episode on the podcast about the mummy as I mentioned and one of the things that came up about that is the way that a film like that and a kind of genre around Egyptology as treasure hunting has been turned into this like totally weird form of colonial nostalgia. And that there is a whole (laughs) category of people out there doing what they claim is serious archeology span in pith helmets for the aesthetic. (laughs) And like, that's a really nasty and messed up thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think tropes and the way that we use them can be really, can be really fun because, and one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is that you are not taking any of these things for granted and, you know, they are subverted and played with and challenged in a really nice way. What's, what do you think that, what do you think that's about? Like, what is it about Egypt that that turns people into like weird colonial <laughs> apologists? Like, I will never know the answer to this question. I'm just really curious if- I-
1: don't know but yeah. for me e- Egyptology was my big passion yeah
0: uh, right
1: uh, you know, when I was studying archaeology and it wasn't something I could study directly so it became something I tried to take courses in like I mean and for me it was the imagery that we had grown up with the pyramids being chief among them but the statues there's so much rich archaeology there that is standing in the in the desert or in the cities mm. on the periphery of the cities. And it's just it's stunning. And there are many places around the world which have stunning archaeological artifacts, but Egypt in particular has this sort of romantic windswept deserts and, mm. and mystical, you know, um, pyramids. In, in the distance I mean when I went to I, I was on the dig in Cyprus and a few of us took a couple of days off to nip on a boat to Cairo and go see the pyramids because that was always something we'd wanted to do yeah. and it was a slightly misty day and I, I remember being on the bus and driving into the city and all you see in the distance through the mist is very very straight lines of mm. the
0: pyramids.
1: and it, they're so sharp even through mist and fog and, and smog um and there's just something about the imagery of Egypt that I think makes a lot of people go silly. Yeah, completely. <laughs> um, and it and it obviously does have a you know a rich history of us going over and investigating again in quotes um things and and stealing them. Um, it's funny with things like the mummy that they do. I mean, it, it it does follow a lot of tropes and it does undo some others. Mm. I wanted to take that a bit further with the sort of colonial aspects with this book. And that was something I worked with um, with my editor, um, Eleanor Teasdale, who, you know, she was, the stuff was in the book, but I wasn't sure how far I could push it. And she was like, let's push it. <laughs> a lot yeah. um, <laughs> so that was really cool to be able to sort of look at these tropes and turn them on their head almost and view them from, you know, current perspectives I think
0: yeah absolutely I feel like I keep saying this but I thought that the book is just delightful and really fun and one of the things I'm just I'm just gonna keep saying that (laughs) (laughs) um one of the things that often pops up in this sort of adventure genre is the representation of Atlantis Yes, and the way that, that the hold that that has on imagination is truly something else. Like if Egypt makes people go silly, yep. Atlantis makes people lose their fucking minds. <clears throat> yes. Because it's the ultimate, right, of all of these treasure hunts and puzzles and, you know, the lost city mm. and untold treasures and things like that. And it the the grip that it has on imagination is just something else.
1: Yeah, and I would have to apologise now because it had, <laughs> it had, and still has me in its grip a little bit. Um, it it is this. It's a mythical. I mean, it's a lost continent, but yeah, right. It's not. It's you know, it's a it's a city that's sank. Um, but there is, I guess it's it could be an idea of utopia. Um, this a technology that maybe we weren't expecting to be at certain time periods in in the Mm -hmm. past and it obviously it it's a story that derived from the priests in Egypt allegedly (laughs) um so it it and it has ties to so many cool things and yet also has been co-opted by white supremacists and and then that makes it all awful and uncomfortable and um yeah but it is it's um it's certainly an enduring uh myth that everyone seems to grab onto in certain ways not always for the good
0: yeah i mean atlantis occupies this very particular position in in imagination where it's like it's real and it's an allegory and no one can ever really draw the lines between those two things you know the the question of whether there ever was this this kind of sunken city is also like archaeologically up for debate because the representation of it is so heavily kind of couched in allegory but then it becomes this way of imagining a sort of alternative past and that as you say, has been absolutely co-opted by white supremacists in the same way that you have people talk about, oh, the pyramids must have been built by aliens or whatever. There's this idea that there must have been at some point in the past, this kind of supreme and superior culture and society that has somehow been lost. And if we can only reconnect to it, then we must be able to sort of rediscover our true selves. And, and the use of Atlantis in that is something I find really interesting. And so throughout the book, there's this kind of quest to find the Hall of Records, and the ultimate goal is to find the location of Atlantis. And I found it interesting that that's the sort of, that everything else is a stepping stone to it, as, as I guess a bit of, bit of a broader metaphor for how we approach, like, the kind of puzzle-solving nature of archaeology, right? The idea is that if you can crack this code, you can crack the next code, and then you can crack the thing that brings you all the fame and riches and power that your heart desires.
1: Yeah. Um, it, it felt like Atlantis was too big um, a goal for one book. For sure. Um, I know it's been done in many, many other books, but for me, because it's so tied up with other aspects like the Hall of Records, which was an interesting thing for me, um, it was something I didn't, I didn't want to tackle straight away. Um, and, but the Hall of Records itself, I mean, the idea of this ancient repository of knowledge, like the Library of Alexandria, you know, that is to me that's even better because it's just so cool um and obviously i you know i i i fell into the trope of sticking it beneath the the sphinx and um yeah and <laughs> did i did some different things with it but you know yeah, you i did i love the hall of records i love the idea of it and i think i don't even think that was part of the original um i don't believe that fell into plato's dialogues that was something that came out of a psychic um, and then tied in with Atlantis, and then became part of the Atlantean myth. And you know, I just thought I'll just throw it after <laughs> it all in. But I really loved it. And but Atlantis has all these different facets to it. It seemed too big to tackle, yeah. and it seemed more like it would be something that would be interesting to tackle in stages, like you say, as part of that unlocking of the puzzle.
0: Mm. Um, that's
1: a that's a really great way of putting it. Thank you. I wish I'd meant that. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
0: <laughs> you can have it now.
1: Thank you. It's something I, I guess I discovered along the way and then you've just put it into um, really nice words that I shall take forward and steal uh, from my own. Thank you.
0: This is why I write history and not fiction. because <laughs> <It's laughs> My job is to take other people's ideas and explain them back to them. <laughs> um, speaking of, I would love to know what your kind of favourites within these genres are like, we've mentioned a couple of times, things like The Mummy and Indiana Jones, you mentioned King Solomon's Mines as well. What is what is it uh, kind of within these genres that that you love the most and what are your favorite kind of representations of them?
1: I mean, I can't get past Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. because that was, I think one of the first movies I saw. Um, and, and Indiana Jones was just this, fantastic character who was both a nerdy teacher um who couldn't cope with his students um and this guy who sort of ends up saving the world or does he does he have any impact on the story that's for other people to um argue about um i thought he did <laughs> but i really uh, i just really love the era and that my my granddad was a spitfire pilot so i've always had a a tie to that particular period of time and my gran was um one of the radar women in the uh, raft so I always I always love that time period anyway um and I think it was nice to see it explored in in things like Indiana Jones um but that said I absolutely adore the mummy series all three of them I mean all three of them even the third one (laughs) it's fine that's a bold start yeah (laughs) the first two especially were so good um and it's just I don't know I mean I I go back to those they're just very escapist fun and I do like that that sort of time period before things were discovered from our point of view
0: Mm. where there
1: wasn't there was an air of you could go and explore the world having not known too much about it from this country whereas now i can google street view a place in you know america and and learn all about where everything is yeah from my computer yeah right um and even you know 20 years ago i could read about stuff in books that, from other people having gone to to places so you know it's um that era of there being an explore from our perspective obviously it wasn't lost um I find quite interesting and you know that's I think that's what draws me back to those particular movies.
0: Mm, completely and yeah this is something that I, I really hope we get the chance to cover more on the podcast is these kind of adventure genres because I think they tell us so much about the eras that make them as well as the eras in which they're set and and that's always a always an interesting thing to consider and you know the way that explorer films of the 1930s and 40s versus 80s and 90s versus now tell us very very different stories and have very different priorities is something that's so interesting and so putting Captain Moxley in this kind of canon is a really interesting and worthwhile thing I think for people to understand how we interpret these stories in very different ways depending on where we're standing
1: are you kidding? That's brilliant. Yes. No, in the but in terms of
0: that. in terms of the way that like the the era of, of the, the era that is telling the story tells us is yeah. more influential and more important than the era in which the story is set.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that I mean, I think that is a thing you can see very obviously with Captain Moxley is that it's written from a, a perspective of now as opposed mm. to the 80s as opposed to the 1930s or 20s yeah I mean they're all very different and it is very telling as to what you see on screen and when it was made and that Mm. connect yeah
0: absolutely for my own personal prying interest is she going to come back are we going to get more of her
1: I would love to write more Captain Moxley I have started more Captain Moxley um, and it's really just a case of seeing what happens.
0: Excellent, that is very good to hear. And finally, um, I often ask people for recommendations. Usually I'm asking historians what they would like to see get made uh, within the, the stories of their sort of era or specialism that they'd like to see represented. Yeah. I kind of want to do the opposite for you and ask if there's anything that you would recommend that, that people might enjoy, maybe something that they could go and, and look at and find some more of these little nuggets of historical truth within within broader kind of fantasy and sci-fi genres and things like that
1: um well seeing as I didn't do much research for this no <laughs> <laughs> However, um I if anyone's ever in Manchester Manchester Museum is yeah. a wonderful wonderful place I believe it's It's changing quite a lot and it has changed quite a lot over the last few years um, for the better, but the collections there are wonderful. The staff I've worked in the back room, you know, I volunteered anyway, uh, a long time ago. And it's just a really wonderful, it's in a beautiful building as well. Oh,
0: I love that place so much. Um,
1: And I just think um, there's nothing specific I would point anyone to, but I would say, go visit your museums and have a think about the things that we've been talking about today and how things are displayed and where they've come from and maybe if they should go back.
0: Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to mention that we haven't covered? Could you tell people a little bit about Swashbucklers maybe?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's been a delight to talk to you about this and and sort of reconnect with this that I haven't thought about in a year (laughs) because I've been working on other things. Um, Swashbucklers is completely different. Um, However, in, in some ways, it isn't. I've taken some tropes from, um, first of all, it's a, it's a sort of Ghostbusters as parents contemporary fantasy story set in England at Christmas um, in the next few weeks, in fact. Incredible. Um, which, is, which is really fun. And it's set in a fictional version of my local town. Um, and it's just a case of, you know, seeing what happens if you have to parent and save the world at the same time. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, and again, it's it's taking n- little nuggets of what I know, in this case, location and parenting, and putting twists on it and sticking it in a whole new perspective. Um, and it seems to be doing okay so far. It's been out a couple of weeks. And, um, yeah, hopefully, it, you know, it becomes the next big Christmas horror <laughs> story. You know, uh, gremlins will will dispense with gremlins. Gremlins
0: and- who?
1: Yeah, well, exactly. And watch Buckingham's in and- no, I love gremlins. We could never do that.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely delightful. Where can people find you online?
1: Uh, people can find me at my website, um, danhanks.com, or they can find me on Twitter, which is Dan underscore Hanks, I believe. Um, and the same on Instagram, but you can just you yell at me anywhere and I'll respond if you're nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week with our last episode of the year. And in the meantime, if you want to find out more, Dan's book, Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire, was published last year by Angry Robot. Swashbucklers is also published by Angry Robot, and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can find out everything you need to there. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at History Friction and on Patreon at Historical Friction. We'll see you next week. Bye.